This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So here we are at last. It might not seem like it, but this is, ladies and gentlemen, Freedom Day. That's right. It's June the 21st, the day that we were told we could, uh, in the words of Matt Hancock uh, or Mr. Effing Useless, we could cry freedom. Uh, The day that we could throw off the shackles of lockdown. No more masks, no more social distancing. And of course, as you all know, it's already happening, isn't it? Did anybody see the game in Hungary over the weekend? Lots of people at that. Apparently, not a problem at all. Just look at Royal Ascot at the weekend and the hordes who were singing and dancing and carousing, as only people who go to Royal Ascot can. Now, a lot of people over the weekend were saying, yeah, but they're all toffs, they're allowed. Have you ever been to Royal Ascot on a Saturday? It is not full of toffs, I can tell you that. Uh, It is full of people having a very good time, and I'm very happy that they are. You will hear nothing from me about dangerous uh, behaviour. You will hear nothing from me about people being cautious and people being reckless. No, all you will hear from me is that this is the day that we were told uh, was going to be the day that all restrictions are going to be lifted. I don't see why they haven't been, and neither do an awful lot of other people. How about the thousands of Scotland fans that descended on London on Thursday and Friday of last week and hung around until Saturday as well? Didn't seem to be much social distancing going on there. Didn't seem to be much mask wearing going on there. And again, I don't criticise them for it. Nice to see people having a good time, to be honest. What about Castle Donington? Even that went ahead at the weekend complete with mosh pits. Hmm? Now, some people are saying, yeah, but they've all got to show that they've got a negative COVID test. Okay. They've all got to show uh, that they've had some kind of vaccination. Okay. I don't see that as necessarily a massive problem. If you don't wish to go to an event because you don't wish to prove that you've had a vaccine, then that's entirely your affair. I don't think that's a hill to die on. I think the point is we need to open up this economy. We need to do it now. Uh, It's as if there are no restrictions out there. Why should it be any different for the rest of us? We're all responsible adults. Well, most of us are. Surely we can now be trusted to wander about freely, knowing as we do that the risk of becoming ill with COVID at the lowest ebb uh, now for the very, very long time. Six deaths yesterday out of a total of 1,111. So that means 1,105 deaths happened yesterday. Six of them in addition from COVID. 0344 499 1000. Coming up this morning, I'll be asking the redoubtable Anne Whittacombe why on earth this Tory government is so timid and what it would take for it to get a backbone. Plus, I'll be wondering what she makes of the St Paul's School for Girls doing away with the term head girl, preferring instead the head of school. 
more wokery hitting our educational institutions. Is it any wonder that people coming out of these places are a bit confused? 03444991000. Coming up later, we've got Peter Hitchens with his take on the week. His column in the Mail on Sunday yesterday quoted a North Korean dissident uh, who was marvelling at how supplicant and easily controlled the West's population has become. And we'll hear a heartbreaking story from historian Mike Yardley on the terrible side effects that afflicted him after he got his first AstraZeneca vaccine. 03444991000. As if that wasn't enough, we are joined by Ingrid Seward with a cornucopia of royal news. We'll be talking about Diana, Charles, baby Archie and, of course, Harry and Meghan. And most of all, we need to hear from you. What are you planning? What are you doing? And what are you seeing out there in the big wide world on Freedom Day? Which, of course, is what it is. You tell us and we'll tell everybody else. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, we haven't spoken for quite a while, so I'm delighted to say that uh, our first guest this morning is Anne Whittacombe, former Conservative MP, Brexit Party MEP, of course, as well. Anne, a very good morning to you. Morning to you. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Well, I mean, I wish it was a slightly more auspicious looking day out there as I gaze upon the the, uh, the Tower of London and the various uh, sights of, uh, of the skyline. Um, but it should be Freedom Day. I see no reason why it's not, really. Um, and we now know, in fact, that Matt Hancock did not give the right information to Boris Johnson about how, uh, how, how successful the vaccination programme was. Otherwise, we might, in fact, be lifting everything today. Well... I asked myself this question, supposing at the very start of the pandemic, we had been where we are now, that we'd had a working vaccine with 80% of the adult population actually vaccinated, that we'd had six deaths, that we had very low levels of hospital admissions. If we had been in that position, we would never have had a lockdown. Mm. We would never, ever have had a lockdown. So I don't understand why, now that the link is broken between catching the disease uh, and dying from it or catching the disease and ending up in hospital, now that link is broken. There's no possibility of the NHS being overwhelmed. Why are we still all being told to car in funk holes instead of saying, yippee, the enemy's in retreat, let's get out of here? Exactly right. I was listening to uh, some figures this morning, Anne, uh, and if you compare, say, for example, at the moment, we have about a thousand people in hospital with the coronavirus. Back in the first lockdown, the high point was 14,000, right, Uh, at any given time. And in January, when it was worse, it was 34,000 people in hospital. So 1,000 is like a tiny little blip. Uh, on the horizon, if you like. And so the, the idea that we're suddenly now uh, afraid to open up the economy is nonsense, isn't it? Well, it is total nonsense, but I'm afraid it has characterised this government's approach um, from the time that Boris Johnson came back from hospital having had uh, COVID himself. Mm. And until then, he was actually quite bullish, you know, and he was talking about land of liberty and, and, and all this sort of stuff. And ever since then... The government and the scientists and probably also the civil servants, though we hear less about them, have been engaged in covering their own posteriors, Mm. basically. That's what it's about, so that they can't be blamed for any deaths that arise when we could all have been locked down and not dying. That is actually what is behind this. It is pathetic. And I have said so many times in my excellent Daily Express column. Well, listen, there's nothing like praising your own column, Anne, and I'm very pleased. Why don't you tell us when we can read it while, while you're at it? 
Uh, yes, you can read it every Wednesday, generally on page 13. <laughs> excellent. Very good. Glad to hear it. No, I agree. It is an excellent column. And you're, uh, as I say, a very redoubtable foe for anybody who wants to mix it up with you. But what I wonder is whether um, Boris Johnson is now kind of in the thrall of these sage people who seem to have taken over without any suggestion that anybody wants them to take over. They now appear to be advising him on everything from, you know, whether to lift the lockdown or whether to uh, make moves on climate change, whether, you know, there's all sorts of things they seem to be advising the government on. And we don't really know who any of these people are. Uh, indeed. And I don't think he's enthralled to them. I think he's enthralled to his own cowardice. Uh, and also, the scientific advice has been very selective. When this business began, you may remember the Great Barrington Declaration. Yes. There was a debate among scientists as to the way forward, you know, and, and, and it was an, an open debate, mm. and, and people took very strong views either way. Uh, but we've got away from that completely now, and all we have is one view, and that view is always the most pessimistic view. This is government by pessimism. Mm. It really is. And also we talk about, you know, caution and we hear them say we must save lives and we can't allow other people to die. But there are many, many more thousands of people now dying as a result of the lockdowns, as a result of the ridiculously long waiting list now in the NHS for everything else. People have spoken to me on this very show about friends of theirs, relatives of theirs who have now died from stage four cancer because they weren't diagnosed last year because they couldn't get to see anybody. Yes, and every time I hear the government talking about, you know, lives are more important than money, mm. the choice is not binary. If the economy collapses as a result of all of this, and every week, every week that we stay in lockdown, more businesses uh, are, are going bankrupt uh, or more businesses are getting close to that line. There isn't a binary choice between lives and the economy um, because uh, poverty itself threatens life mm. because the mental health issues that have arisen from lockdown threaten life um, and I know of a case I mean absolutely directly know of a case where somebody did take his life because he couldn't endure another lockdown mm. um, and so it's not a binary choice um, it sounds good doesn't it oh we're saving lives yeah it does it sounds good but you know the reality now is very different well, exactly right. And then the more we learn as well as time goes on, Anne, I mean, you know, talk radio and you've probably been the same in your column. You know, we've been questioning an awful lot of government policy. Yeah. We haven't been saying it doesn't work. We haven't been saying, yeah. you know, we don't believe that there is a COVID desire, uh, you know, disease. We haven't been saying any of that, but we have been asking questions. You know, the mask debate still goes on. There's no real proof whether masks do any good at all. A lot of people, I think, today right. will be dis dis uh, disembarking from the mask debate altogether and just chucking them away. Um, we, we now don't really know whether social distancing is of any of any good whatsoever we also now don't know whether these ridiculous perspex screens might actually be counterproductive you know all the things that we questioned are now coming home to roost it seems well i think if you want a real indication as to how serious it is to mask wearing just look at the g7 summit mm. i mean there were the leaders who are imposing on their citizens a highly restricted way of life insisting that they wear masks, insisting that they keep a social distance. There were our leaders at the G7 summit, patting each other on the back, right up close, not a mask in sight. Uh, and therefore one presumes, since they wouldn't willingly put themselves in danger, uh, that actually there is a limited value to mask wearing. Mm. Now, I have throughout this pandemic said, what we need is for the government to trust citizens to make their own judgments. And so, for example, if you're sitting in a very highly packed tube train, 
you might feel safer in a mask. But if you're alone in a carriage on a train and there's nobody uh, within 12 feet of you, let alone six feet, why would you bother? Mm. Why can't we make our own judgment? Yes. Well, I have been, actually, throughout the whole thing. And I think an awful lot of people have been as well. And I mean, I saw a picture of somebody that I'm uh, a, a follower of on Twitter. Uh, he was on one of the boats, you know, those clipper boats that go up and down the Thames. And, he's, and he actually put a tweet out saying he was forced to wear a mask by the people on the boat, despite the fact that he was sitting outside and there was nobody else on it. <laughs> and you just ah, go, what's that ludicrous. about? You know, just ludicrous. It's, yeah. Yeah, absolutely idiotic. But what's it going to take, do you think, for the for the switch to finally be, be be flicked, if you like, inside Boris's head? Because, I mean, he could find a reason to stop lifting the lockdown every single day if he wanted to, because he just has to grasp at another straw mm. that's handed to him by Chris Whitty, who will say, oh, there might be a third wave coming. Well, there might be a meteor strike. You know, who knows? There could be a number yeah. of things could happen. And it, for a dead certainty, there will be more variants yeah, over course. time. No, no, are we going to go into a panic every time there's a new variant? Uh, and so, uh, you know, he's got to, I think he's got to find courage. But one thing that has been lacking, of course, has been a real opposition. And I understand entirely why right at the beginning, Keir Starmer decided to back the government. Because mm. when you have uh, situations of national emergency, then there is a, a, a tradition that, you know, the two parties in Parliament at least try to cooperate. Uh, but... Um, this has gone on a very long time. There's been no dispute from the opposition about the science, about the figures, about anything like that. All they will say is he should have taken even more stringent measures. Um, the only thing that they have been effective on, as far as I can see, is criticising the absolutely hopeless mess that our borders policy yes. became. Yes. And the, the, I mean, the, the, the sight of people coming back into the country from uh, to Heathrow uh, and regardless of where they'd come from, all mixing together. Uh, and then, of course, being separated according to which countries they'd come from. Well, by mm. then it's too late. I know. Absolute folly. And the government has got so much wrong. But the thing that does drive me mad is Boris likes to think of himself as Churchill. Everybody thinks Boris has got warmth and go. And I used to think that. In fact, he is a complete coward in the face of this emergency. Yes, I'm afraid he has been running away from it at every single opportunity. Stay with us, Anne, for a moment. We just have to take a short yep. break. Anne Whittacombe, former Conservative MP, columnist for The Daily Express, of course. Very excellent column every Wednesday on page 13. Don't miss it. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now we've got Anne Whittacombe with us. Anne, I guess if you're uh, Sir Keir Starmer, you can be happy, though, this weekend uh, in the knowledge that you've now managed to get... Uh, um, somebody as Tory as John Burko to defect to the Labour Party. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think uh, Keir Starmer is going to find it an extremely mixed blessing. I mean, the fact is, John has had Labour Party sympathies for a very, very long time. The wonder to a lot of us mm. was that he hadn't already crossed the floor. Uh, so um, I don't think this is particularly surprising. Uh, I don't think it's uh, uh, going to do Labour very much good. Um, and uh, it remains to be seen whether John will end up in the Lords. I don't know. Yes, I certainly hope not, because I think there will be an awful lot of people in this country who would rather uh, see him end up somewhere else, but that's another story. Let me just finish up, Anne, by asking you about the St Paul's story, St Paul's Girls' School <laughs> coming out yesterday and claiming, not yesterday, over the weekend, uh, claiming they're yeah. doing away with the term head girl. You know, I don't really care what they do, but surely to be consistent, if you're going to do away with the phrase head girl, you have to do away with the title of St Paul's School for Girls, don't you? 
Yes, of course you do. I mean, it's a complete nonsense. If you're going to say uh, that the term head girl is unacceptable because it's too binary, uh, then uh, you have to say that, that the, 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 the title of the school itself uh, is too binary. Mm. Are they going to open up to boys? What are they going to do? Yeah. It is a complete nonsense, complete nonsense. And we're in this morass of nonsense for reasons that I don't understand, because it seems to me that all you need is for sensible people to just withdraw support from all of this. Yes. Uh, and to say, you know, well, look, we, I actually want my child to go to a school where they recognise that, you know, a, a man's a man and a woman's a woman. Well, because um, per perversely, the end result of all of this kind of demarcation is that you end up getting one minority having a go at another minority for not taking account <laughs> enough of one minority that's over there and another one that's over there and maybe one that might be behind you. And you're kind of going, well, it would be a lot simpler, surely, um, if you just had St Paul's School for Girls, Cardinal Vaughan School for Boys, where I went. Um, and that's probably pretty straightforward for most parents, isn't it? It is. And bearing in mind that a lot of parents deliberately want uh, single-sex education for their children, um, they don't need any confusion about it. They they need to know this is a girls' school, this is a boys' school. Yeah. Uh, and but but it's just the ludicrous, the ludicrous nature of saying, you know, we can't call the head girl the head girl. I mean, why they didn't simply go for head prefect? I don't know. Yeah. Rather than head of school, I mean, that's the headmistress, surely. If I'm allowed to call her the headmistress, well, you know, you you may not be allowed, allowed to, to. You may not be allowed to do that. But you're absolutely right because, of course, now the other thing that I find extraordinary about the way education seems to be going is that the students at university and the pupils at schools seem to now be in charge you know certainly it wasn't like that when i was at school yes i mean there was a recent um upset in in the sunday papers uh, about a teacher who'd been teaching his class how to pronounce niger right and of course you can imagine the error that he made uh, and children were encouraged to fill in complaints forms of course fill in complaint forms mm. i mean in my day the teacher would have said right keep quiet get on with the work you know and listen because you're learning yes exactly right oh i also saw um somebody the other day saying that uh, there's now uh, an excuse you can make for uh, taking your uh, not taking your exams or to doing badly in your exams because you're traumatized by something so you may have been traumatized by something you read something you heard on talk radio something you saw in Anne Whittacombe's column and you can actually go to your tutor and say look I'm too traumatized to do my exams um, can I do them next week <laughs> I, I, I absolutely am saying is all this nonsense about triggers. Mm. You know, you, you have to give trigger warnings in case people are going to be upset. Well, if you're going to be upset by it, don't study it. Yes, you know, exactly. But, you know. Well, you made a great I mean, speech, which I tweeted out. When it is, I, sorry, I, when it's serious trauma, you know, if you've been in a, in a car crash or something, that's different. But when it is simply that something has offended you, for you to be able to claim trauma, mm. I mean, what sort of nation are we going to become? I know. It's madness. You made a great speech, which looked as if it was at the Oxford Union, I think. It was going around on Twitter yesterday, and I tweeted it out saying you'd be coming on today. And you were basically talking about being offended and people having yeah. to know that if you are in the public eye, one, uh, you will be offended. Even if and you're not in the public eye, you're likely to be offended by something. And nobody has the right not to be offended. Mm. You know, that, that is the point. Free speech means that some people will be offended by other people's views. And that is what a democracy is about. Yes. And you know, it's, it's the old adage that you may disagree with somebody profoundly, but you will still defend to the hilt their right to utter that view. Indeed. And we're losing sight of that. Though I have to say, 
the Oxford Union, which I thought might go the other way, the Oxford Union voted by a vast majority uh, against no platforming and, and good for them. They did that finally seeing some light well i'm hoping that the wokery will not last forever because it can't they don't because they can't concentrate on anything for long enough to actually make it happen so hopefully we will be victorious in the end and great to talk to you we'll look forward to reading your column in the daily express on wednesday page 13 folks and Whittacombe, former conservative mp uh former brexit party mep as well fine fantastic upstanding member of society the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio Let's talk now, though, to Ingrid Seward, author uh, of Prince Philip Revealed and editor-in-chief of Majesty magazine. Great piece in The Sun this morning uh, where she's talking about a meeting she had with Princess Diana. Diana at 60. Um, It's hard to imagine that Diana would have been 60 if she was alive uh, today. But there's the spread that Ingrid has done. Uh, It's a fascinating read. Ingrid, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Um, it's been quite an interesting weekend um, in terms of royal stories, hasn't it? Because we've got the sort of the new generation uh, of Meghan and Harry and their children. We've got Prince Charles talking about that at the same time because it's Diana's uh, it would have been her 60th birthday. We've got lots of stories about about her um, and why she ended up in Paris, why she didn't come back to London. And your uh, interview with her is fascinating. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it wasn't really an interview. It was uh, what she called a girly chat. Mm. And, and, you know, and and she invited me to go to Kensington Palace because I'd written something. Actually, it was in the in the Daily Mail that she she didn't like at all. Mm. And um, and that was very typical Diana. You know, she would always confront people. if if she She was very good at that, wasn't she? She was very good at that. I mean, you know, she sort of, you know, she invited, she she made friends with, with, with journalists and things, and she invited them to lunch or to coffee or whatever. Well, she, uh, and she she really made her mark that mm. way. I think it was very clever and quite brave of her, really. Um, but she obviously felt that it worked that way, and it certainly did. Mm. Absolutely right. And your story was one of those which was famously kind of repeated and retreaded all over the place, which was that there was a suggestion that she had a male admirer who was smuggled in and out of Kensington Palace in the boot of a car. Well, absolutely. I mean, I had no idea who it was, Mm. but she obviously thought that I knew exactly who it was. And she was terrified of anyone finding out about her relationship with Hazmat Khan because he had sort of said, you know, he had said to her, you know, I can't bear anything about this relationship Mm. to come out. And she really did, really did keep it very, very, very secret. And um, she thought I knew, so she was going to take, get me and then quiz me and find out. But of course, I didn't know at all. Yes. And it was a fascinating time for royal coverage. And I try to explain it to people who weren't around at that time. And it's it's almost impossible to to declare how big of a megastar she really was. You know, it was the biggest thing really since since anyone can remember. And, and when you read the stories now about the royal family, people go, oh, you a lot are obsessed with the royal family. You go, well, you should have been here in the 90s. You know, it was a lot different then. But um, well, it was every day, wasn't it? It really was. was absolutely. Every single day and every single newspaper. Yeah. Exactly. And then there was the War of the Waleses, and Diana said one thing, and Charles said the other, and it was absolutely endless. Yes, and exactly. of course, it was the, the time when newspapers and magazines and things discovered that that you know having Diana, or, you know, a story about Diana really did did sell newspapers. Mm. Yes, it really did, and also she was a fascinating character, and you describe how she looked because towards the the end of her life, she did look fantastic. I mean, she was the, she was at her very best, wasn't she? She looked 
I mean, she was pure uh, movie star looks yeah. by, by, the, by this time, yes. And the thing that, I, and I described this in the paper today, the thing that I really noticed was she had this extraordinary skin, and I think I described it. She looked as if she'd been dipped in honey. Yes, yes, that's Harry a very Tales good description. Gold honey. Yeah. Yeah. I remember and, that uh, picture that was taken of her when she was running, she was out running, and I think she was running down um, Kensington High Street or... Um, Brompton Road or some maybe Brompton Road and she just actually did look like Diana the Hunter you know she, yes. her, her hair was, was gorgeous you know she was wearing sort of leggings and she was and she just looked fabulous whatever happened I mean also remember the wonderful pictures when she went to see Pavarotti this is going back a bit when she yeah. went to see Pavarotti in the park mm. and it rained a bit like it like it is today yes. and she was absolutely soaking wet but she still looked Amazing. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. What did you make of the Prince Charles stuff this weekend? I mean, two stories, really. The one where uh, he was uh, asked to come in and see Lord Stevens about various allegations concerning uh, Diana's death, but also uh, him saying, supposedly, to uh, to various aides that he doesn't think that he'd be very keen to expand the royal family, therefore doesn't really think that baby Archie should ever be given any kind of title. Well, we don't know if uh, if actually Prince Charles did say that, but I, I'm sure he, you know, it sounds like him. Um, and he he's very keen on on, uh, and he said this. He he wants to, you know, sort of narrow the royal family down instead of expanding the family. He wants to reduce it so that there are, you know, the sort of primary members, and they will do most of the work because I think Charles feels that there's just too many members of the royal family uh, out and about and therefore they become very open to mm. criticism and people f probably feel well why you know what why is our hard-earned taxes going on 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 this and right. i think that charles is trying to protect the monarchy by shrinking it no of course and i mean from harry and Wagan's perspective they've been banging on about how they don't care about titles they don't want to be part of the royal family harry says that you know he found being a uh, a member of it uh, intensely uh, sort of you know constricting he felt like he was in a cage he felt like he couldn't be himself so why would they want it anyway exactly I mean, why? Uh, I mean, I, why would they? I think what Charles is doing—he's keeping the, the prince and princess titles to to William's children, mm. uh, and 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 no one else, which mm. I think is probably eminently sensible. Well, I think so, yeah, because you know, time has since passed when uh, they're a big organisation doing lots of lots of things. So, you know, as far as the uh, uh, the future goes, somebody said this morning on. Uh, uh, on the radio, that it would be a good idea for them to be like Princess Anne's kids, who seem to go through life without having to have a title, who seem to, uh, to, to do OK. Uh, they've got their own business interests, they do their own thing, and everybody's quite happy. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think that's what, what Prince Charles wants to do. I mean, obviously, he, he feels that the, that, that the monarchy has to be preserved, and this is probably the modern way to preserve it. Mm, absolutely right. Well, Ingrid, uh, great piece in the paper today. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Ingrid Seward, author of Prince Philip Revealed, editor-in-chief of Majesty magazine. If you can get hold of a copy of The Sun, very good piece in there today uh, by Ingrid about the whole Diana phenomenon. If you don't uh, remember it or you weren't there or you care that you'd like to know about more about it, that is somewhere that you can go because it is extraordinary life that she had and it is an extraordinary uh, story the way that Diana sort of came and was such a, a powerful force in not just the royal family but everywhere and for Britain and now of course uh, we mourn her death every single year because she was a very important part of our history as indeed is much of our history which some people are trying to do away with well I'm not having it uh, we are talking about Freedom Day we are celebrating it a lot of people uh, are quite 
remarkably upset by it all, of course, which you wouldn't be surprised about. Jane says this, Today I stopped wearing a mask. I'm amazed at the amount of people who think waiting four weeks is OK. I work as a wedding stylist and hire and my business has been devastated. I've done a couple of weddings in the last few weeks and the rules have been ridiculous. Well, there's now talk of doing weddings outside. You can now have more people. Well, good luck if you're doing it today. You better bring a couple of thousand umbrellas and a couple of sou'westers if you're going to be doing it because it's absolutely horrible out there. Ghastly, dreadful. This is Talk Radio. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Let us say a very good morning to Mr. Peter Hitchens. Peter, how are you? Morning. Glad I'm not a druid. Uh, well, indeed. I mean, there are many things that could make life worse at the moment, and I think being a druid is probably one of them. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't admit to being a pessimist, by the way. I boast of being a pessimist. <laughs> I urge other people. If it's the one, I don't proselytise for most things. I, I'd say if you don't want to believe what I believe, then that's your affair. But honestly, you'd all be so much happier if you adopted pessimism. It is the key to happiness. Yes. Are you are you then one of are you are you then one of those that sees it all sort of sliding downhill from summer solstice day? Then. Well, I, what do you say downhill? I mean, I I, I, I happen to like autumn, but no, I, it's, it's 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 obvious that the days start getting shorter and the nights longer. If you if you like that sort of thing, which I do, that's fine. So. Uh, no, it's not really like that. It's all pessimism. It's, it's, it's really accepting reality and not pretending to yourself that things are better than they are, or making up uh, making up things to make yourself feel more cheerful. Pessimism is accepting the world as it is and living according to it. And also, uh, I have to admit this, laughing at it quite a lot. 
those is well known. I have no sense of humour. Yes, you see, I differ from you on that. I think you've got a great sense of humour. Uh, you just pretend not to have one because I've. No, seen... I have a certificate from the the, the, <laughs> the, the, the Bundes Humorlosigkeitsstiftung of Salzgitter in Germany to prove that I have no sense of humour. I'll get it out one of these weeks. Is that a bit like the the, the cowardly lion's um, courage medal that he got from the Wizard of Oz, though? Something like that, yeah. But it's, <laughs> it's a good German certificate. For lots of yeah, no, about. listen, I'm all in favour of all sorts of ridiculous honours to be bestowed upon us uh, for whatever it is that we do. Let's talk uh, for a moment before we get into North Korea um, about the e-scooter story, because I noticed you've retweeted this incredible story about a guy uh, trying to join a motorway stream uh, on well, an I'll e-scooter. I've taken the tweeting every pretty much every story I, I see about an e-scooter because I, I get a lot of trouble from this. People say, well, why on earth are you going on about this trivial issue? I said, well, I, mainly because nobody else is. Right. And it's the job of journalists to draw attention uh, to problems before they become uh, generally accepted as problems. How do we get worked up about particular subjects? Why do, why do these things become important? Because journalists pick them up and run with them. People say, well, what's it to do with you? Uh, the reason it's to do with me is I see this all the time, and I've, I think that if we legalise these things, it will be an act of madness. Mm. Uh, someone tweeted me today from Singapore saying they've been banned there because they're, they're too fast for the pavement and too unstable for the road, which I think is a very good summary of why they, it's completely daft to make them legal yeah. when they are already illegal. And there is an extremely smooth and well-financed lobby, which presumably hopes to make a lot of money out of selling them, working away at the moment and at the moment there are one or two people apart from me who seem to have spotted the something wrong we have a few months in which to prevent them mm. uh, being everywhere and then you'll find once they're everywhere they, they will you know, you'll step out of a shop and one will whack into you yeah uh, or worse whack into a, a small child or, a, or an old lady yeah uh, with terrible consequences or you'll be driving on the road and one will will, will swerve in front of you and you'll quite possibly smash into it through no fault of your own because some idiot in the transport committee of the House of Commons, decided to recommend that these things should be given a, a, a trial. I don't. I don't know why uh, we ever needed this. No. The, well, this is all part, though. Is it so transparently wrong? Yeah, but it's all part, is it not, Peter, of this new green agenda? Anything which appears to uh, take cars off the road, which is what they claim these will do, um, is uh, it, apt, it has to be encouraged, regardless of how dangerous or otherwise it might be evidence that they do that. I'm all in favour of, of there being fewer cars, but that, there's no evidence that these scooters do this. P- people who, who drive cars are not going to swap them with their, their airbags and their seatbelts mm. and their side impact protection, and indeed their protection from the weather, uh, for a, a, a plank of metal uh, completely unprotected with wholly inadequate brakes and safety measures careering along the road. Uh, they're just not going to do it. The people who are going principally to ride these scooters are going to be people, people who've lost their licences. Uh, and, and people who can't be bothered to mm. get licenses, uh, people who have have a proper motor car full licenses will not ride them. And the other thing is that why are they green? Batteries have to be charged. Yes. And this simple point needs to be made again and again. Where do you think the electricity comes from to charge the battery? Mostly in this country, from either from imported power, quite a lot of which is uh, coal burning, uh, or, or or from British generated power, quite a lot a lot of which is these days generated by gas, mm. which is supposed to be. Uh, terribly clean and green, but it isn't. Uh, and it, it's a nonsense. It, it, both the main arguments for them are crazy, and the, uh, the safety arguments against them seem to me to be overpowering. And the idea that they will be effectively restricted to 12 and a half miles an hour or, or whatever it is is nonsense. Mm. You see from this incident on the M606 that they can get up to 70 miles an hour. 
and it just needs a certain amount of fiddling about with them. I don't know how to do it, but then I, I can't do really anything much on a computer. I promise you that plenty of scooter riders will learn very quickly, as indeed e-bike riders have learned to o- overcome mm. the, the things which prevent... But I mean, even, even with a basic lack of... Uh, a, a basic knowledge of physics, you must be able to look at the size of the wheels on these scooters, um, the size of the human standing on it, and to, to know that travelling at that sort of speed, at 70 miles an hour on something with wheels that small... Uh, on what is probably a relatively uneven surface, is madness. It's idiotic. Well, no doubt, but speed is exhilarating, and people do stupid things. And the, 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 what we have to do to prevent that is, is, is to make it harder for them to do them. And people say, "Well, why are you campaigning against cars?" I say, "Well, I would campaign against cars, but they're already legal, and it's a simple fact." Mm. Uh, in all areas, from cars to drugs, something which has become legal and has been legal for many years cannot easily be banned. Uh, the same with motorbikes. And people say, well, why do you get annoyed about bicycles on pavements? I say, okay, any time. But the truth is, uh, they, these, these things already happen. Here we have a means of transport, which is actually against the law, and which the government is proposing to, to, to make legal. And it's allowing, uniquely, I've never heard of this before, in, at any point, of the government saying, we're going to make something legal in specific areas, which is illegal elsewhere in the country. Yeah, it's, why, it's, why it's absolutely extraordinary. They're with burglary, and so we're going to have an experiment. There. We're going to make burglary legal. Because a lot of people will say, well, it appears to be legal already. <laughs> well, it's certainly what, decriminalized. It isn't actually legal. And why are they making something which is illegal everywhere else, legal in a few selected, uh, punished cities, uh, to get people used to something which they otherwise wouldn't be used to? I think, I think people shouldn't get used to it. They should, they should write to their members of parliament. Uh, going to rightsofthem.com, which tells you how. It's very easy. And say, look, I don't want these things, thank mm. you very much. There's no need to make them legal. Uh, please vote against any attempt to do so. No, indeed. I mean, we'll be speaking later on to Nick Freeman, who's put a petition up to Parliament to try and get e-scooters and, indeed, bicycles actually registered and properly regulated so that people can be identified as the riders of, of said machines, whether it's a bike or whether it's a I've an e-scooter. It's I mean, there's, a, there's all kinds of arguments for and against it. The only place I've ever seen bicycles with, uh, with registration plates on them is actually North Korea. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you pointed out, which, which takes us very nicely into our next segment, which was, uh, as you described it, a woman uh, who left North Korea and who's now effectively sort of a dissident from North Korea, who went to America to study and discovered that actually um, she felt that the people um, in educational establishments where she was studying um, were more supplicant, perhaps, than the people of North Korea. Yes, yeah, she, was, she, she was, I think, astonished, having gone to the huge efforts of, of bravery and suffering which are necessary to leave North Korea and get out, uh, and, and winning what she thought was the huge honour of getting to Columbia University in New York City, which is one of the great universities mm. of the United States. Yeah. Uh, she was horrified to find uh, how willingly people accepted what was effectively brainwashing of the kind which her country underwent because it was under a, a, a stern military dictatorship which had been imposed in wartime. We never in the United States or Britain had to undergo any such thing, yet we agree uh, to be subjected to rules which say, oh, if you say one thing out of turn about the sexual revolution or about transgender issues or whatever it happens to be, you can be cancelled. And even in the, in the course of being taught about the great literature of the world, Someone will tell you, oh, Jane Austen, uh, she, she's really an advocate of slavery. You shouldn't be keen on that and, uh, and direct you to something else. It, this is the kind of dogmatic ideological education which used to take place only in dictatorships. She recognized it instantly. Uh, but what she also did, this is Yeomi Park is her name, and she, she, she's written books about her experiences, but what she also did was she realized very quickly 
the process against it was futile, mm. uh, that it was so established that the only thing to do to get the necessary grades and to, and to get a degree uh, was to pretend to go along with it, uh, which is exactly what people do in countries like North Korea. Mm. You pretend to go. Though I have to say, a fascinating thing about North Korea uh, is that so many of the people I've met genuinely believed what they'd been told and were actually quite upset uh, if you suggested to them, for instance, that, uh, that uh, North Korea and the North had started the war. Mm. Uh, and they, they, they would become personally distressed if you, if you told them. But that, again, that's not their fault. They live in a country where you can't well, read I was books say, as, or, as, or watch foreign television or listen to foreign radio. They didn't know. Right. But this is the thing. I mean, as you point out, you know, these are people who are only given one source of information and they really have no choice but to accept that to be true. Whereas we don't have one source of information, albeit uh, they try to cancel people they don't, uh, who don't agree with them. There are There is still a, a reasonable plurality, uh, plurality, I can't even say it, uh, plurality of, uh, of, of ideas in this country. Well, you say that, but in fact, it's, it's increasingly symbolic and marginal. The, the major media only really give space uh, to a, a very narrow set of views. And this, the, the recent events over COVID have intensified this. You simply can't get into the big newspapers or the major broadcasting channels if you don't have acceptable opinions. It's in, in many ways, it's actually rather like Vladimir Putin's Russia, mm. uh, where the major news channels are all totally in the hands of the, of the sinister dictatorship. Uh, but there are small outlets that are allowed to say practically anything you like. Uh, but as, as, long as, as long as you carry on saying it in a magazine with a circulation of 15,000 or a radio station that nobody listens to, it doesn't matter. But as soon as you get anywhere near anything big, uh, you'll be off air. Yes. And I think it, it, it's, it, it's not imposed in the same way because, again, in, in, in Putin's Russia, people do it out of fear of the state. But in, in this country, people do it either because they genuinely believe in it, which many do, or out of fear of the, of the, the process of cancellation by the by, Twitter or whatever it happens yes. to be, and the fear ultimately of losing your job, not the fear of imprisonment, the fear of losing your job and, 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 and your livelihood, which is a very, very powerful fear. But as I keep saying, Amnesty International is never going to get up a letter writing campaign for someone who's lost his job. It's a, it, it, but as long as they don't imprison people for saying the wrong thing. Uh, the countries which are restricting free speech can get away with it forever. And you've sort of dated all this back always, Peter, to the Blair regime, haven't you, when you came back from living abroad in, in Russia specifically? Um, the Blair regime intensified it uh, and, and, and made it much more concrete, but it had been going on before. I, the first time I really noticed it, I came back from, I'd been in, in Russia for two and a half years, in America for two years. I came back in, in late uh, the late summer of 1995. And it was extraordinary how quickly I began to get this very strange feeling. Where does this country remind me of? It doesn't feel like Britain, the Britain I left in 1990 anymore at all. And it, it, it took a long time to acknowledge it because it was so, so crazy as the, the, this North Korean Yami Park must also have felt. But eventually I said to myself, this is actually terribly like the Soviet Union. Uh, there are so many things which bring, and this was before Blair. Okay, because the cultural revolution in, in broadcasting and publishing and, uh, and the schools and the universities have been underway for years. Mm. What, the Blair, what the Blair takeover did was they brought all these things into government and put the force of the law and parliament behind them, and leading up to that amazing piece of legislation, terribly revolutionary, the Equality Act of 2010, which basically made 
what can loosely be called political correctness, the official state belief and religion of the country. Mm. And I suppose you might argue that those two years before uh, Blair got in in 97 um, were the kind of groundwork being laid for his accession to power. For example, things like Clive Hollick buying the Daily Express uh, and turning it into a Labour-supporting newspaper. Well, quite, yeah. And it was, the, the, the groundwork was being made. It was accepted by almost everybody in the Conservative Party that they were going to lose. And they couldn't, in many cases, see any great objection to it. I, I was, always was struck by the contrast between when Neil Kinnock lost his general election. He was genuinely furious. And he mm. stood there saying, do not be old, do not be poor. He really, really hated the fact that he'd been beaten. And, and felt that it was a disaster for the country. And I thought that was, uh, that, that was to his credit. Because what, what's the point of leading a political party if you don't believe what you say? Mm. John Major lost probably the most important election in, in modern British history and went off to the cricket. Yeah. Well, you know, he lost your contrast. The he Tory was, party he... at that time was completely flaccid. I remember the, the Tories go on and on now about Gordon Brown selling off all the gold reserves, which he did, an amazing act of folly. Uh, and they say this is, a, this is a disaster, which it was. But at the time, uh, I, I remember trying to get the Tory party to, to speak out against it. And the front bench couldn't be bothered. They just simply were not interested. Yeah. Uh, and I, in fact, that was when I was a, a presenter on your radio station mm. in its previous form. Yeah. And I couldn't get the The only person in Parliament who cared was a backbencher called Peter Tapsell, yes. uh, who spoke very eloquently against it. But the front bench could not be bothered. They yeah. were a completely flaccid supine. Yes. They totally accepted that the that, that Labour had the sort of right to have won, and the Blairites had a right to, to have won. Yeah, it was almost like it's their turn. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Let us say a very good morning to Mr Peter Hitchens. Peter, how are you? Morning. Glad I'm not a druid. Uh, well, indeed. I mean, there are many things that could make life worse at the moment, and I think being a druid is probably one of them. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't admit to being a pessimist, by the way. I boast of being a pessimist. <laughs> I urge other people. If it's the one, I don't proselytise for most things. I, I'd say if you don't want to believe what I believe, then that's your affair. But honestly, you'd all be so much happier if you adopted pessimism. It is the key to happiness. Yes. Uh, are, you, are, you then one of, are, you, are you then one of those that sees it all sort of sliding downhill from summer solstice day then? Well, I, what do you say downhill? I mean, I, 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 I happen to like autumn, but no, I, it's, 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 it's obvious that the days start getting shorter and the nights longer. If you, if you like that sort of thing, which I do, that's fine. So... Uh, no, it's not really like that. It's all pessimism. It's, it's, it's really accepting reality and not pretending to yourself that things are better than they are or making up uh, making up things to make yourself feel more cheerful. Pessimism is accepting the world as it is and living according to it. And also, uh, I have to admit this, laughing at it quite a lot, though it's, it's well known I have no sense of humour. Yes, but you see, I differ from you on that. I think you've got a great sense of humour. Uh, you just pretend not to have one because I've no, seen... No, I have a certificate from the... the, the, <laughs> the, the, the Bundeshumorlösigkeitsstiftung of Salzgitter in Germany to prove that I have no sense of humour. I'll get it out one of these weeks. Is that a bit like the the, the Cowardly Lion's um, Courage medal that he got from the Wizard of Oz, though? Something like that, yeah. But it's, <laughs> it's a good German certificate. With lots of yeah, no, listen, that. I'm all in favour of all sorts of ridiculous honours to be bestowed upon us uh, for whatever it is that we do. Let's talk uh, for a moment before we get into North Korea. Um, about the e-scooter story, because I noticed you've retweeted this incredible story about a guy uh, trying to join a motorway stream uh, on well, an e-scooter. I've taken the tweeting every pretty much every story I, I see about an e-scooter because I, I get a lot of trouble from this. People say, well, why on earth are you going on about this trivial issue? I said, well, I, mainly because nobody else is. Right. And it's the job of journalists to draw attention uh, to problems before they become 
uh, generally accepted as problems. How do we get worked up about particular subjects? Why do why do these things become important? Because journalists pick them up and run with them. People say, well, what's it to do with you? Uh, the reason it's to do with me is I've seen this all the time, and I've, I think that if we legalize these things, it will be an act of madness. Mm. Uh, someone tweeted me today from Singapore saying they've been banned there because they're, they're too fast for the pavement and too unstable for the road, which I think is a very good summary of why it's completely daft to make them legal yeah. when they are already illegal. And there is an extremely smooth and well-financed lobby, which presumably hopes to make a lot of money out of selling them, working away at the moment. And at the moment, there are one or two people apart from me who seem to have spotted the something wrong. We have a few months in which to prevent them mm. uh, being everywhere. And then you'll find once they're everywhere, they, they will, you know, you'll step out of a shop and one will whack into you. Yeah. Uh, or worse, whack into a, a small child or, a, or an old lady yeah. uh, with terrible consequences, or you'll be driving on the road and one will, will, will swerve in front of you and you'll quite possibly smash into it through no fault of your own because some idiot in the transport committee of the House of Commons decided to recommend that these things should be given a, a, a trial. I don't, I don't know why uh, we ever needed this. No. The, well, this is all part, though. Is it, so transparently wrong. Yeah, but it's all part, is it not, Peter, of this new green agenda? Anything which appears to uh, take cars off the road, which is what they claim these will do, um, is uh, it, apt, it has to be encouraged, regardless of how dangerous or otherwise it might be. There's no evidence that they do that. I'm all in favour of, of there being fewer cars, but that, there's no evidence that these scooters do this. People who, who drive cars are not going to swap them with their their airbags and their seatbelts mm. and their side impact protection and indeed their protection from the weather uh, for a, a, a plank of metal uh, completely unprotected with wholly inadequate brakes and safety measures careering along the road. Uh, they're just not going to do it. The people who are going principally to ride e-scooters are going to be people, people who've lost their licenses uh, and, and people who can't be bothered to mm. get licenses. Uh, people who have, have a proper motor car full licenses will not ride them. And the other thing is that why are they green? Batteries have to be charged. Yes. And this simple point needs to be made again and again. Where do you think the electricity comes from to charge the battery? Mostly in this country, from either from imported power, quite a lot of which is uh, coal burning, uh, or, or or from British generated power, quite a lot a lot of which is these days generated by gas, mm. which is supposed to be uh, terribly clean and green, but it isn't. Uh, and it's a nonsense. The, both the main arguments for them are crazy, and the, the safety arguments against them seem to me to be overpowering. And the idea that they will be effectively restricted to 12 and a half miles an hour or, or whatever it is, is nonsense. You mm. see from this incident on the M606 that they can get up to 70 miles an hour. And it just needs a certain amount of fiddling about with them. I don't know how to do it, but then I, I can't do really anything much on a computer. I promise you that plenty of scooter riders will learn very quickly, as indeed e-bike riders have learned to overcome mm. But I mean, even even with a basic lack of uh, a, a basic knowledge of physics, you must be able to look at the size of the wheels on these scooters, um, the size of the human standing on it, and to to know that travelling at that sort of speed, at seventy miles an hour, on something with wheels that small, uh, on what is probably a relatively uneven surface, is madness. It's idiotic. Well, no doubt, but speed is exhilarating, and people do stupid things. And the, the, what we have to do to prevent that is, is, is to make it harder for them to do them. And people say, "Well, why are you campaigning against cars?" I say, "Well, I would campaign against cars, but they're already legal, and it's a simple fact mm. uh, in all areas, from cars to drugs. Something which has become legal and has been legal for many years cannot easily be banned." Uh, the same with motorbikes. And people say, "Well, why do you get annoyed about bicycles on pavements?" I say, "Okay, any time." But the truth is. 
And they, these, these things already happen. Here we have a means of transport, which is actually against the law and which the government is proposing to, to, to make legal. And it's allowing uniquely, I've never heard of this before in, at any point of the government saying, we're going to make something legal in specific areas, which is illegal elsewhere in the country. Yeah, uh, it's, why, it's, why it's absolutely extraordinary. They're with burglary, and so we're going to have an experiment there. We're going to make burglary legal. Because a lot of people will say, well, it appears to be legal already. <laughs> well, it's certainly decriminalised. It isn't actually legal. And why are they making something which is illegal everywhere else, legal in a few selected, uh, punished cities, uh, to get people used to something which they otherwise wouldn't be used to? I think I think people shouldn't get used to it. They should, they should write to their members of parliament. Uh, going to rightsofthem.com, which tells you how, it's very easy, and say, look, I don't want these things, thank mm. you very much. There's no need to make them legal. Uh, please vote against any attempt to do so. No, indeed. I mean, we'll be speaking later on to Nick Freeman, who's put a petition up to Parliament to try and get e-scooters and, indeed, bicycles actually registered and properly regulated so that people can be identified as the riders of, of said machines, whether it's a bike or whether it's a I've seen practical. I mean, there's, a, there's all kinds of arguments for and against it. The only place I've ever seen bicycles with, uh, with registration plates on them is actually North Korea. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you pointed out, which, which takes us very nicely into our next segment, which was, uh, as you described it, a woman uh, who left North Korea and who's now effectively sort of a dissident from North Korea, who went to America to study and discovered that actually um, she felt that the people um, in educational establishments where she was studying um, were more supplicant, perhaps, than the people of North Korea. Yes, yeah, she, she, she was, I think, astonished, having gone to the huge efforts of, of bravery and suffering which are necessary to leave North Korea and get out, uh, and, and winning what she thought was the huge honour of getting to Columbia University in New York City, which is one of the great universities mm. of the United States. Yeah. Uh, she was horrified to find uh, how willingly people accepted what was effectively brainwashing of the kind which her country underwent because it was under a, a, a stern military dictatorship which had been imposed in wartime. We never in the United States or Britain had to undergo any such thing, yet we agree uh, to be subjected to rules which say, oh, if you say one thing out of turn about the sexual revolution or about transgender issues or whatever it happens to be, you can be cancelled. And even in the, in the course of being taught about the great literature of the world, Someone will tell you, oh, Jane Austen, uh, she, she's really an advocate of slavery. You shouldn't be keen on that and, uh, and direct you to something else. It, this is the kind of dogmatic ideological education which used to take place only in dictatorships. She recognized it instantly. Uh, but what she also did, this is Yeomi Park is her name, and she, she, she's written books about her experiences, but what she also did was she realized very quickly the protest against it was futile, mm. uh, that it was so established that the only thing to do to get the necessary grades and to, and to get a degree uh, was to pretend to go along with it, uh, which is exactly what people do in countries like North Korea. Mm. You pretend to go. Though I have to say, a fascinating thing about North Korea uh, is that so many of the people I've met genuinely believed what they'd been told and were actually quite upset uh, if you suggested to them, for instance, that, uh, that uh, North Korea and the North had started the war, mm. uh, and they, they, they would become personally distressed if you if you told them. But that again, that's not their fault. They live in a country where you can't well, read. I was going to say, as, or, as, or watch foreign television or listen to foreign radio, they didn't know. Right. But this is the thing. I mean, as you point out, you know, these are people who are only given one source of information and they really have no choice but to accept that to be true. Whereas we don't have one source of information, albeit uh, they try to cancel people they don't, uh, who don't agree with them. There are There is still a, a reasonable plurality, uh, plural, I can't even say it, uh, plurality of, uh, of, of ideas in this country. 
Well, you say that, but in fact, it's it's increasingly symbolic and marginal. The the major media only really give space uh, to a, a very narrow set of views, and this the the recent events over COVID have intensified this. You simply can't get into the big newspapers or the major broadcasting channels if you don't have acceptable opinions. It's in, in many ways, it's actually rather like Vladimir Putin's Russia, mm. uh, where the major news channels are all totally in the hands of the, of the sinister dictatorship. Uh, but there are small outlets who are allowed to say practically anything you like. Uh, but as, as, long as, as long as you carry on saying it in a magazine with a circulation of 15 thousand or a radio station nobody listens to it doesn't matter but as soon as you get anywhere near anything big uh, you'll be off air yes and i think it's it, it's it's not imposed in the same way because again in, in, in putin's russia people do it out of fear of the state but in, in this country people do it either because they genuinely believe in it which many do or out of fear of the of the, the process of cancellation by the by twitter or whatever it happens yes. to be and the fear ultimately of losing your job, not the fear of imprisonment, the fear of losing your job and, 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 and your livelihood, which is a very, very powerful fear. But as I keep saying, Amnesty International is never going to get up a letter writing campaign for someone who's lost his job. It's a, it, it, but as long as they don't imprison people for saying the wrong thing, uh, the countries which are restricting free speech can get away with it forever. And you've sort of dated all this back always, Peter, to the Blair regime, haven't you, when you came back from living abroad in, in Russia specifically? Um, <laughs> The Blair regime intensified it uh, and, and, and made it much more concrete, but it had been going on before. And the first time I really noticed it, I came back from, I'd been in, in Russia for two and a half years, in America for two years. I came back in, in late, uh, the late summer of 1995. And it was extraordinary how quickly I began to get this very strange feeling. Where does this country remind me of? It doesn't feel like Britain, the Britain I left in 1990 anymore at all. And it, it took a long time to acknowledge it because it was so so crazy as the, the, this North Korean Yeonmi Park must also have felt. But eventually I said to myself, this is actually terribly like the Soviet Union. Uh, there are so many things which bring... And this was before Blair, okay, because the cultural revolution in, in broadcasting and publishing and, uh, and the schools and the universities had been underway for years. Mm. What, the Blair, what the Blair takeover did was they brought all these things into government and put the force of the law and parliament behind them, and leading up to that amazing piece of legislation, terribly revolutionary, the Equality Act of 2010, which basically made what can loosely be called political correctness the official state belief and religion of the country. Mm. And I suppose you might argue that those two years before uh, Blair got in in 97 um, were the kind of groundwork being laid for his accession to power. For example, things like Clive Hollick buying the Daily Express uh, and turning it into a Labour-supporting newspaper. Well, quite, yeah. And it was, the, the, the groundwork was being made. It was accepted by almost everybody in the Conservative Party that they were going to lose. And they couldn't, in many cases, see any great objection to it. I, I was, always was struck by the contrast between when Neil Kinnock lost his general election. He was genuinely furious. And he mm. stood there saying, do not be old, do not be poor. He really, really hated the fact that he'd been beaten. And, and felt that it was a disaster for the country. And I thought that was uh, that, that was to his credit. Because what, what's the point of leading a political party if you don't believe what you're saying? Mm. John Major lost probably the most important election in, in modern British history and went off to the cricket. Yeah. Well, you know, he lost your contrast. The he Tory was, party he... at that time was completely flaccid. I remember the, the Tories go on and on now about Gordon Brown selling off all the gold reserves, which he did, an amazing act of folly. Uh, and they say this is, a, this is a disaster, which it was. But at the time, 
I, I remember trying to get the Tory party to, to speak out against it. And the front bench couldn't be bothered. They just simply were not interested. Yeah. Uh, and I, in fact, that was when I was a, a presenter on your radio station mm. in its previous form. Yeah. And I couldn't get the go. The only person in Parliament who cared was a backbencher called Peter Tapsell, yes. uh, who spoke very eloquently against it. But the front bench could not be bothered. They yeah. were a completely flaccid supine. Yes. They totally accepted that the that, that Labour had the sort of right to have won, and, and the Blairites had a right to, to have won. Yeah, it was almost like it's their turn. <laughs> Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We're talking to Peter Hitchens from the Mail on Sunday. Peter, let's finish up with a a chat about what's going on uh, inside Downing Street. We hear that Matt Hancock uh, inadvertently or deliberately refused to pass information onto the Prime Minister about uh, why we should uh, not lift this lockdown on the grounds that uh, um, they didn't think it was uh, relevant enough or something. Um, it seems as though we could have lifted everything today, um, but the July 19th date now is is, is uncertain as well, isn't it? Well, it's, it's, it's always uncertain that it happens. I think they are under very considerable political pressure to, to move on July 19th. The question is how much of the restrictions will they keep? Mm. I strongly suspect, uh, because they love it so much, that mask wearing will, for instance, be, be continued, perhaps indefinitely now. Uh, it's, it's extraordinary, but the, the, the rest of it we'll see. Uh, and that's part of the reason for the, for the hesitation, to make us feel that any relaxation is a gift to us rather than a return mm. to what our normal lives ought to be. The whole thing is a, is a, is, is a, is a result of this, this complete surrender by political leadership, which is supposed to speak for the country and to assess things on rational grounds, uh, and the the scientific advisors who uh, have only one interest in their lives, and that is not to be wrong, mm. uh, and therefore they cannot ever advise uh, that we should open up, because to do that, this is the one thing. If they get that wrong, then their, their whole purpose in life will, will will have been destroyed. They will look crazy. If they get it right, they'll get no credit for it. You can never expect the scientific advisors to, to advise that we should open up. And the government's ministers really ought to understand this and, and understand that it's their responsibility to take these decisions. I, obviously, from my point of view, I don't think the thing that should ever have been imposed. It no. remains to me that, that as, as, as mad as burning down your house to get rid of a, of a wasp nest. But trying to see it purely for the sake of argument from inside the government, they have to understand the politicians are responsible to Parliament and then to the country, and they have wider responsibilities and indeed wider basis on which to take decisions than their scientific advisors, who are not, who simply cannot be allowed to take decisions for them. Otherwise, what is the point in having a government at all? Mm. Uh, we might as well just hand, hand the country over to experts who will always take the cautious line. We will never be able to travel properly again. Uh, we will be under constant surveillance. Uh, everything we do will be checked. Our, our children will wear masks in kindergarten. We won't be able to see old people when they get ill. The whole of life will be constrained because of the what what experts of this kind see is is a, is a, is, a, is, a, is a, a objective of total safety, zero COVID, mm. zero disease, zero danger of everything being wrapped in cotton wool. Well, you you might be safe in the middle of that, but you you wouldn't really be human anymore. Well, that's right. 
and, and safety and safety has many descriptions and safety um, may not apply to every single aspect of all of that. I, look, I watched an interview with Rory Stewart over the weekend that he gave sort of back in March of last year, which was quite interesting in which he basically said what lessons he had learned from various um, sort of problems that he'd had to sort out in his political career, including Ebola was that it's all very well listening to experts, but you have to listen to the experts in the area in which they are expert, rather than allowing them to become experts in everything. Well, you also have to recognise that, that experts differ. And what, what this government has done from the start is it's taken advice on this from a certain group of experts who've taken one view, and it's ignored other experts who've taken a, a different view. And I think that when, perhaps 20 or 30 years from now, it's cooled down enough for there to be a dispassionate analysis of what happened, one of the things that we recognise is that we made a grave mistake in not, not listening uh, to some of the experts mm. who said that the, the, the measures proposed were excessive uh, and also they, they, were, they were kept going for far too long. Uh, but I, the problem is now so many people have a stake in believing in this. The people who fell for it, of course, they, they themselves don't want to admit that they were fooled. So they're all in the, if only the government had locked down earlier uh, and then the, the government themselves, they, they cannot conceivably say we, we have we bankrupted the country five times over uh, for, a, for a mistake. Mm. So they have to insist that what they did was right. But there will come a time when all the people, all the individuals involved are out of politics and out of the, the, the scientific rat race. And it will, will then be possible to analyze it properly. And truth is the daughter of time. I'm quite confident. Uh, that sometime after I'm dead, somebody will pop up and say, well, actually, yes, it was always a great mistake, but it's no good now. And we're stuck with the fact mm. that huge numbers of people have a stake in it. And the only way to get to bring this to an end, or at least to bring it down to, to manageable, bearable levels, is to keep on pointing out to the cabinet that they were elected to govern the country and they have wider responsibilities than those of, uh, than those that the zero COVID mm. merchants would like to impose on. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Good point to end on. Peter, thank you very much indeed. We'll see you next week. Peter Hitchens, Man on Sunday columnist there, making a great deal of common sense, uh, as he always does. There's no question, I think, in my mind now, that people are beginning to move the, the dial themselves. They're not going to wait until July the 19th. They're not necessarily going to wait until July the 5th, if anything changes then. They are going to do what they think is best for them, for their families, for their businesses, because that's where we are now in this country. We are now at a crossroads where people who are sick to death of lockdown, sick to death of constriction, sick to death of restriction, are going to just say, do you know what? I'm going to do what I think is best. And who can argue with that? Let's face it. That's what we all want to do for ourselves and for our families. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let's talk to Trevor Kavanagh right now. Trevor, very good afternoon to you. Hi, Mike. So, um, I don't know whether you share my, um, I'd say optimism, that uh, there is a great deal of pressure now being brought to bear, I think, on uh, from all sides on Boris Johnson, because we found out over the weekend that not only did Matt Hancock not provide all of the information that he could have provided in order to keep this day as the lockdown uh, lockdown lifting day for June the 21st, because he didn't tell the Prime Minister uh, that the vaccines were actually working better than uh, they thought. Yes, and I think that the hospitalizations and the death rate have told the same story, that in fact uh, the numbers are falling, it's levelling off at, uh, at worst. And I think that um, Boris Johnson must have felt like... Uh, one of those people who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and regretted it the moment they let go when he announced on uh, the uh, 19th that he wasn't going to have Freedom Day today after all. And, you know, he and all the ministers, um, including Matt Hancock, 
at the very beginning when we started to get these wonderful vaccines, we're saying it's not how you go into a, a pandemic with people dying everywhere. It's how you come out of it. They were really so buoyant about the fact that they're going to emerge covered in glory. Well, I think that they may not in the end, with everybody else doing better than we are. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, when you see uh, football crowds in Hungary at capacity, when you see people in uh, the United States of America, um, you know, going to nightclubs, even when you look at Royal Ascot, even when you look at what happened at the G7, you know, I don't think anyone who attended the G7 looked as if they were frightened of catching COVID. Um, They looked as if they were more than happy to do whatever they wanted. Exactly. I think that the general public, despite the opinion polls, which I find completely bewildering because I haven't met anyone no. uh, who says that they think this should go on and on. It seems only to be Sage and a few people who work for the public sector, I think, and those on furlough. Um, so I think that uh, what we have is a situation where Boris personally, I'm sure, deeply regrets the fact that he did what he did the other day mm. and has postponed what should have been our Freedom Day today. Another four weeks of purgatory. And I think that most people in their private lives are going about them as if they were not uh, locked down. So it's uh, and, and another thing, if they if they now show uh, that they're uh, abandoning the sort of restrictions everyone else is having to accept to allow these uh, UEFA officials in for the uh, final, uh, the cup final, mm. I, I think that will go down <clears throat> like a lead balloon and um, people are just going to uh, carry on uh, breaking the rules. Well, I mean, you saw Royal Ascot at the weekend where uh, plenty of people seemed more than happy to, to, to sing and dance and, and, and sing God Save the Queen and hang out with each other very closely without wearing masks. I mean, I think that the game is up, as we would have said in the old days. Yes, the main point is that we've got to the situation where almost 80% of the um, adult population has been vaccinated at least once. And one vaccination, one jab alone, is pretty good protection. Two jabs, which is a pretty large proportion of the uh, general public anyway, and certainly all those most vulnerable to it, um, is always completely um, uh, complete immunity. So why are we doing this? Why are we in Britain, which led the way with these vaccinations, trailing behind Germany and uh, quite a lot of the European Union, and certainly the United States of America, where people are free to do as they please. Exactly right. And I was looking at some statistics this morning, Trevor, where apparently there's about a thousand or so people in hospital currently in the country with COVID. In, um, I think, last year's first lockdown, uh, when it was thought to be serious, it was 14,000. And in January, it was 34,000, right? So clearly, it's a very much smaller number. And when we hear them talking in terms of um, percentages, you know, rocketing up, it's percentages of very small numbers. Yes, and what we seem to be terrified is of something happening of which we know nothing yet. It may be that there will be other variants. It may be uh, some remote possibility that they would be more dangerous. But there's been nothing so far. None of the variants, the mutants, have turned out to be any more deadly than the Kent variant, which was the first of them. And I think that we are overreacting. Uh, and in a, and what is even worse, Sage is now telling us that we may have to have further lockdowns in the winter. Mm. I don't think we should ever have another lockdown again. No, I think I think absolutely uh, you're completely correct. And of course, the government keep telling us, well, the reason we are waiting and waiting is because we don't want to have another lockdown. I'm afraid I don't really believe them. I mean, your column today about uh, Boris being kind of unassailable uh, is, is very similar to something I said a few weeks ago. Where it was like, what does he have to do? to become unpopular. I mean, he pretty much could do anything he wants, really. 
But it's a little bit worrying, Mike, that he's not prepared to put at risk any of that stockpile of mm. capital that he's managed to accumulate over the period that he's been prime minister. I mean, he's way ahead of uh, Keir Starmer in the polls, way ahead of Labour, which has basically disappeared off the radar, and is free to do pretty much as he pleases, as long as he presents it in a way which makes it clear that he's considered all the risks and all the benefits and all the upsides and downsides. If he were to do that and tell and be straight with the people, level with the voters, look, there is a slight risk, but just about everybody that's in any, any way vulnerable has been vaccinated twice. We can take this risk and live our lives as normal again. I yeah. think as things stand, he's so terrified of criticism that we may never live our lives as we once did again. I think that's the worry, isn't it? Because surely to God, at some point, and you and I have spoken about this before, the, the collateral damage, the people around the lockdown, the people who have suffered during the lockdown, surely at what point does their um, life come into uh, to come into question? When does their quality of life actually get protected? You know, what's good in any of this for them? Well, not until we disband SAGE as it stands at the moment and st stop them from speaking out individually as freelance spokesmen for the medical uh, fraternity and make sure that they speak through with one voice, preferably through Matt Hancock, and not by people like Neil Ferguson, Susan Mitchie and others who just go on and scaremonger on the radio, yeah. on BBC in particular. Yeah. It is quite extraordinary, isn't it, that people are walking around on the one hand with a knowledge in their heads of how dangerous it is, i.e. not very, um, and yet every time you switch on the BBC, you would think we were literally at sort of peak January levels of infection and peak levels uh, of death, which we're not. You, you have to ask also, Mike, why on earth are they and others broadcasting every day, every evening on primetime television, mm the casualty rate for an illness which has become no, no longer a danger to the public. Mm. It is uh, about as small in terms of uh, hospitalizations and death rates as it's possible to be. You're more likely to die from falling down a stepladder than from COVID. Yeah. And how often does that happen? So, I mean, you have to get this into context and, and to perspective. And one of the most important aspects is the economy now. The, the economy is more important at the moment than the threat from COVID. Mm. Well, it really is. I mean, again, um, the Telegraph have thankfully taken to putting the, the full figure of number of deaths from every single cause on the front page in addition to COVID. Today, 1,111 uh, people is the figure of number of people who died. Uh, six of them died from COVID. I mean, that's all you need to know, isn't it? It is. And uh, it would be interesting to see the BBC and Sky TV putting cameramen and crews outside, say, the Royal Marsden to interview weeping um, cancer victims and their families as they did with COVID at peak period. They are now more at risk for, and others from other non-COVID life-threatening disease than anything that we are facing from this pandemic. So we should be shifting our focus now to getting back on an even keel, dealing with that huge backlog of a million patients who need serious health care, and, and stop panicking about a disease which is now under control. Mm. And what is going on inside of Downing Street, Trevor? I mean, you talk to people um, in the business of the Cabinet. We're told that the, the Cabinet has kind of become a bit non-existent in the sense that it's now uh, a very small clique of people in a room. Uh, and if you're not in that clique, then you're not really getting told what's going on. And certainly it seems that an awful lot of Cabinet ministers don't know what's going on. Um, but, you know, 
there doesn't seem to be many people in that room talking about what we are talking about and, and getting the economy moving again. Well, what I can tell you, Mike, is that there are very senior cabinet ministers who couldn't answer that question either. Mm. They aren't being told, they're not being consulted, they learn about events afterwards, and um, these are very senior figures who should be consulted. I mean, the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, is not being told about major spending plans on, for instance, the environment, green energy, and the new royal yacht, and so on. And, you know, this is something which um, a relationship between the Chancellor and the Prime Minister is pivotal in any government, and I think that Boris is taking liberties with this. And he seems to have not the slightest clue about spending as long as he's spending it. Mm. Uh, he doesn't know, it doesn't matter where it comes from or where it goes. And this is part of his private life as much as it is his now public life. Yeah, but that's the thing. You know, what is kind of very, I suppose, um, attractive in Boris as a leader uh, is also now becoming almost equally unattractive uh, in his decision-making process. Yes, the, the thing is, though, that Boris is effectively unassailable because... Mm. Whatever we are saying now, right at this moment, he is, uh, he is the most popular politician uh, around at the moment. And I think if he did, say he called a general election tomorrow, he would sweep the country. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you and I say. It's what the people out there think of him, which is that he's rather a cuddly looking guy and they like his bashful image and they'll forgive him anything. But so, will, but will know, that that's, last that's for, his strongest suit. But will that last forever, Trevor? Because if, for example, and it's not completely out of the question that we got to July the 19th and suddenly he went, well, do you know what? We've still got some of these variants knocking around. We sure have to be careful. Let's put it off for another four weeks. I think people are going to start to lose their faith in him if he does that. Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head, Mike, because um, what he's saying privately, I can tell you, is that there definitely will be July the 19th and no later, no mm. matter what. But I don't think anybody trusts him anymore when he no. says these things because we've heard it before many times and suddenly on the eve of um, developments which are not in any way sensational or unexpected he changes he turns on a sixpence and uh, that's there are so many examples of that i couldn't even begin mm. to list them but this is the key to it the point you made about trust and if that runs out at a particularly important part in the political um, calendar at some point when he needs us to trust him most, I think that that could be the, the dangerous point for him. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Trevor, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Trevor Kavanagh, the former political editor of The Sun, uh, columnist today, of course. The Boris Party won the rest of the world nil, uh, is the headline in The Sun today. Um, and that is the problem. Boris is, at the moment, unassailable. And he won't stay that way forever. And an awful lot of people who voted for him back in the election of 2019 will say, not again, no thank you. Uh, and I think it's time you started listening to those people and you started listening to what we're saying here at Talk Radio as well. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. 
When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.